0: What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest Ford Fisher, one of the founders of News to Share and friend of the show. What's going on, Ford? Welcome back to the show, brother.
1: Hey, thank you for having me back on.
0: Man, there is so much going on in the world, and I I want to start kind of... I want to I get right into it. I want to get your thoughts on... What you think about Elon Musk taking over Twitter and then also some of the Twitter files that have just dropped. Um, you know, the, the first part's kind of an opinion. I'm I'm pretty pro. I think it's great. I think, you know, Twitter right now is a wild, wild west. You've got Eli Lilly, uh, people making fake accounts, fake Eli Lilly accounts saying insulin's free. I think it's great, right? It's the, the comedic value of it is is impressive. It's it's back. But I also can't, can see that there's some, con, you know, some cons to this. And you're a very avid user of Twitter, so it'd be interesting to get kind of your take of the Elon situation, and then in turn the uh, Twitter files.
1: For sure. So I think that it is probably that Elon's effect on Twitter is probably more complicated than one can turn into this like really strictly partisan like Elon bad or Elon good. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that that's been. Uh, Part of the issue so far is that, like, the mainstream media and I guess what I would call, like, the American center left or, like, the establishment left have been very quick to try to make Elon into kind of a monster. Um, And on the other hand, I think that there has been this... Um, uh, on the American right, this this instinct to turn him into kind of like the new messiah sent to save Twitter from all of its downfalls. And I think the reality is we're talking about uh, there was a big tech CEO and now there's a new one. And yeah. um, Elon is probably more public facing and uh, ideologically driven than most CEOs. And so um, that has driven Twitter into some interesting directions, and so it's been a lot of change, very quickly. And so I, I actually have, I think I would say, like rather mixed feelings um, about about that. And so I, I do want to be clear that in my journalism, I try to be not so much of an opinion journalist, right? I, I my work is primarily about going to situations and just documenting them, making, you know, footage that I the style of primary source documentary footage is basically just filming something and showing the audience what happened and hoping that my own thoughts or opinions are essentially irrelevant or excluded from it. Um with that being said, my method of delivery uh, of that kind of content is very much wrapped in free speech type issues, right? I have to be able to publish it, um, you know, without the state interfering, uh, for sure. And then also, you know, through means provided by these technology organizations. And so it puts me in this complicated position of being a journalist who tries to exclude my opinions, uh, but then I do have opinions, I guess, on the best ways um, for those corporations to be able to facilitate that delivery of information. It It affects me as a party. Um, So with that in mind, and bearing in mind that opinions are opinions, and so I'm not reporting my ideas about Elon as fact, um, I I will firstly say that I think that the biggest change it seems like he's made is the idea of verification as something you can acquire by paying for it. Um, I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, it took me a really long time to get verified. And that process was—and to be clear, that was pre-Elon. Um, that process was rather arbitrary, um, and uh, it it still happens, I would say, very it, like inequitably. Um, and sort of what I mean by that is mainstream news networks uh, tend to sort of um, facilitate the acquisition of check marks by the people who work for them. Um, so without naming names like There's a small uh, news network in D.C., which is around where I live and and primarily cover. And uh, their newsroom, when their uh, main news account got verified, all of the people who worked there and had email addresses uh, associated with that news company, they were all verified at the same time. Um, Even people who were quite new, even interns, right? Like, just everybody was all verified at once. And... With it in mind that theoretically the check mark was supposed to be a sign of authenticity and journalists were essentially supposed to get those, and it's not a sign of this person is important or special or something, um, it should essentially be equitable. But the the uh, danger that it fell into was that it was um, excluding people who were not associated with corporate media. Um, this new idea of the of people being able to pay for it. On the one hand, it was cool because it uh takes some of the like status symbol out of it, which I think is good that it's not this sort of like elite holier than thou because I have a blue check mark versus the rest. It's like or you could just pay 8 bucks a month and you'd have it. I think that leveling of the playing field in a way is a good thing. Um but I also think that it's really bad that people were able to be verified when they were not actually the thing that they were saying they were like if somebody is making nintendo and they just have a three instead of the e and it looks like a verified nintendo page then the then the term verification is meaningless because they haven't actually been verified as anything and i think that that uh can be responsible for disinformation just to give like a really specific example i've seen one that's um an account that looks the same as Ben Shapiro's account. And they cha- they did that same thing, like a three instead of an E. And because people were doing this, Elon was saying, okay, well, now you'll get banned for impersonation if you don't mark parody, if it's an impersonation account. So this, this Ben Shapiro account, which as we're recording this, I believe still exists, is verified, looks like the Ben Shapiro account, and they have it as Ben Shapiro author of and then so it says like author of this is a parody account so that the name is too long to render most of the time and so even though it technically follows the rules by saying parody it you don't see parody when you're scrolling and it just looks like Ben Shapiro posting something that he's not and so i do think that's ripe for a fraud so uh, I don't want to monopolize all the time speaking here, so no, no, I'll kind no, of throw no, it no back no to you. But like that would be the first thing Elon did, and as you can see, I have pretty mixed feelings about that. And yeah,
0: I definitely think that's fair. You know, I, for whatever reason for for good or for bad, like I like the chaos. Like it, it <laughs> is funny to see these these people. Like you know, if you didn't know. Who Ben Shapiro is? He's a you know he's a conservative thinker. Um, he you think he runs or owns the Daily Wire? Um, you know, very. Uh Orthodox Jewish person and I don't know if this is the specific account but on the other one like he's in a gay relationship with someone and he's just he's just saying all sorts of wild things which obviously if you know who he is you know that that's bullshit but if you don't you'd be very confused I find most of these things to be hilarious and it and it makes me think like the artistic or the the comedians of the world. Who have these ideas, I wanna to talk to them because I don't know how you have the time to like think up these funny things. But I can see, you know, from your perspective, that is very problematic. When you have a lot of people that do go to Twitter for the news, because in my opinion and I believe yours as well, Twitter is like the tip of the spear like if something crazy goes down the first place that you're going to be able to get boots on the ground or you know your eyes in the digital space of of uh, getting information of what's going on it's going to be Twitter everything else trickles yeah. maybe Reddit if you're lucky and you you you're on the front page and something's going down but i think Twitter's going to be generally the best the best site for that so it's it's conf- it's confusing but on you know on the other hand i think that this chaos is going to get cleaned up. Everyone's acting like what's going on is terrible. But what's what's happening is change. And it's it's one it, it's one administration or one you know, management situation transitioning into another. So there's going to be a lot of chaos and there's going to be a lot of bad ideas. But overall, I feel like Elon taking over this company and purchasing it is probably the best thing. Like I, I think it's a good thing. Um, especially, which will lead us into the, our next point, is the Twitter files, right? Like, what and, and and if you could, I'm not sure that everyone is is caught up on what's going on, but if you could, in just kind of succinctly let let the audience know what the Twitter files are.
1: Right. So we are recording this on December 9th, and so I want to be clear that as of now, there have been sort of two batches of. What, the so-called Twitter files that have been released. and my understanding is that essentially Elon has uh, he has generally been making the point that there were misdeeds done by the former runners of Twitter and in order to expose what he sees as those misdeeds, he has shared uh, some degree of files or access uh, to a handful of reporters to sift through and and report on. And so the first batch was released by Matt Taibbi and the second uh, by Barry Wise. And so in that first batch, my from reading through it, it was a number of documents mostly pertaining to Twitter's grappling with the suppression of the story of Hunter Biden's laptop in October of 2020. And so what... Um, the the interesting thing about, I guess, both of these releases is that neither of them really showed something that the public didn't know had happened. Um, what they really did was add color to the way that Twitter um, was dialoguing internally about these as they were occurring. Um, and so in that first one, what they the public-facing reason that Twitter took an enforcement action, which was, uh, to those who don't know, the New York Post... Had a story about this laptop. Um, Twitter suppressed the link uh, such that it would. It, the New York Post itself was as an account was suspended until they would agree to delete the story. Uh, ultimately, uh, Twitter undid that so that New York Post wouldn't have to press delete on their own story, thus acknowledging some kind of misdeed. Um, but if someone else shared the link, it would tell you that it's an unsafe link. Um, and it would prevent or make it more difficult to send or tweet and so forth. And what they used as a justification for this was that the uh, materials being reported on were potentially hacked. And so they have a policy against the sharing of hacked materials. And so, like in more practical terms, if if I somehow managed to get into Rick's, you know, computer, I found uh, some kind of document of his that uh, I that I wanted to expose him over, and then I published that on my own Twitter. That would be against Twitter's rules. Um, Twitter essentially alleged that they felt that this story violated that rule. And what the first round of document releases showed was that internally they were not actually sure about that. Indeed, the our current understanding of that situation was that Hunter Biden left his laptop at a repair shop, not that it was illegally hacked by some foreign party. And so internally, they were saying, this appears to be a genuine story. And also, it probably doesn't violate that policy, so we're going to face criticism, uh, which they which they, of course, did. It was talked about in Congress and so forth. Um, I actually thought that the most interesting part of those releases was that Congressman Ro Khanna, who is a Democrat, actually was um, concerned and contacted Twitter himself, not about uh, the proliferation of the story, but he was concerned about the suppression of journalism. So I th- for all of this discussion of like, oh, the you know the right wing cares about free speech and the left doesn't, or whatever, it was actually a Democratic member of Congress who who. Actually, tangibly took steps when this happened um, to contact Twitter and and seek clarification about that. Um, the second round of documents, uh, which came out last night as we're recording this, which I think, it, which I personally find more substantial, sort of shows the back end tools that Twitter used to um, suppress or, as people have used the term, shadow ban um, content. And so, shadow banning, to those who don't know, is sort of Uh, This idea, which until yesterday was not quite as tangibly understood, and it's still a little hard to define, but basically an enforcement action that is not confirmed by the um, moderating company, um, but suppresses somebody's content. So as opposed to uh, you weren't allowed to post this, and so you're being penalized for it. in the case of like outright banning a piece of content or a person, um, or something like YouTube, where they might age restrict your content to make it less available, but they tell you that they're doing that. The idea of shadow banning is that they're suppressing your content, but not telling you that, that they're doing that. And ways that that can happen include marking your account as sensitive, making it harder to show up algorithmically, preventing it from showing up in search suggestion bans and so forth. Um, This has actually affected me. My my coverage of January 6th, um, I've personally filmed the violence of January 6th. My footage was used in the impeachment of Trump. Um, But over the five months following January 6th, my entire account was actually marked the way that pornography is. Um, it was marked like this this profile may be sensitive. You would have to have your settings on Twitter to allow 18 plus stuff to be visible. And then even if you did that, you'd have to press buttons individually to view any of my tweets and it wouldn't show up in search suggestion bands. In other words, my content wouldn't be visible unless you specifically went out, sought it out and then said, I'm okay with seeing porn. And then you'd be able to see my my video news coverage of January 6th and so forth. Um, So... Twitter never acknowledged that, and they never actually told me this is an enforcement action because we thought your footage was too violent or or whatever they thought the problem was. It just happened, and then one day it just went away. Um, In these files that have been released, we now see the back end of it where they actually have buttons for search suggestion ban for marking a profile not safe for work. Um, and so forth. Not not allowing someone to show up in trending was another one. So they had actually very specific uh, penalties that they could impose on accounts that are unappealable and not uh, communicated to the person. Um, my... Criticism of the release, however, I will say. So I think it's good that the public can see that. I think it's good that we're aware of that. And Elon actually himself said that people would now be informed when that kind of action is taken and have an ability to appeal. Unequivocally, I think that's a good thing. Adding more due process, uh, I think, is always positive. More transparency is is always positive. The problem I have with the releases so far is that the actual uh, examples given Appeared to be take just photos taken of a of a computer screen of specific profiles who these actions were taken on. It was like Charlie Kirk, who's like a conservative commentator, for lack of a better word. Um, Dan Bongino, who's like a Trump uh, kind of loyalist. Um, uh libs of tiktok which is an account that uh primarily targets lgbt people by by posting what they see as absurd or or offensive or whatever um things that those people post all of these were accounts generally associated with the right wing and i think that it probably falsely left people with the impression that these things only happen to conservatives
0: yeah i think that that's that's a bit of a problem too because I, there's definitely got to be um people that are on the left uh that this happened to as well um i think that primarily you know i don't know i did, but there's definitely got to be so i i think that's a good point um
1: it's an international service i mean the other exactly, thing is that course. there's not just the conventional american left or right like pa- palestin palestinians wouldn't be like left or right in in the con- in the conventional american sense mm-hmm. but um, there has certainly been suppression of content related to Palestinian struggle. Um, ve- very recently, like since Elon, um, Garland Nixon, who's a, radio- a progressive radio host who was on the board of the ACLU, um, was banned from Twitter for a post um, critical of the State Department's support for Ukrainians. I mean, so politics are just more complicated than left and right. Yes. And I am concerned about leaving the public with the false impression that it only affects one particular American political ideology when the issue is so much more complex than that. 100%. There was also
2: a, um, uh, I'd say it's a leftist uh, gun rights organization called the John Brown Gun Club. Yeah. They do a lot of counter protesting at LGBT events that are targeted by people like Patriot Front and the Proud Boys and far right activists that their account was banned. And there's been a lot of, I can't think of the names, but there have been several other leftist accounts banned as well.
1: Right, and so the what was interesting about that particular chapter of the John Brown Gun Club was it seems to be, in response to them doing organization of of like you said an armed counter rally, um, Facebook has actually taken um, we you can kind of see the way that like all of these different like Twitter's in the news right now, but Facebook for two years has basically had a policy that like any. Uh, organized armed group or group that calls for people to show up to anything with guns is bannable. And so Facebook has, there was actually a leaked list. It was like hundreds and hundreds of organizations. um, Some of them like international terrorist organizations are looped in with as the same as like, like leftist groups attempting to provide security for like a, for like a bar with an LGBT event in it. Um, Sort of as conflated as if these are all the same. In the post-Elon takeover world, I've I've seen conservatives to some extent cheering on when leftists get taken down. I don't actually think that that's so attributable to Elon. Um, like, I think that that's been happening before. It's not like this just happened to the—like, there's just sort of this different— Focus of attention. But other than some account restorations post Elon, I don't think that the policies have changed so much in practice. It's also fascinating that e- Elon himself has said that he wants more free speech, like in terms of what you're able to publish, but that he wants to decrease attention to what he sees as negative or hateful postings, which is just an endorsement of shadow banning. So as he's canning these documents um, and and saying, you know, we need more transparency about shadow banning, which is nice, he's still, he's still actually endorsing the practice of shadow banning. He hasn't said that this will end.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it will. You know, I just think that I feel like the other side, right, or like, I don't know, you and I are really just kind of Sitting back, lurking, but let's just say he's—he's he's far more—he's in—he's—he's he's kind of in endorsed Republicanism, right? Um, right? The other side's like, we're fucking in control now, so like it's not—he's not necessarily going to be targeting the messages that we're trying to he's going to which is i think a legitimate concern if you're on the opposite political aisles they're going to be like he's going to start he's going to employ the same nasty tricks that didn't necessarily affect our ideology he's going to flip that over to the next which is what i don't want to see any of that happen i want what i was hoping and what i do hope is that we just the water you know it's it's We've got a water spigot, and it's 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 just kind of leaking. I want him to turn that bitch on, just just let's see what happens, right? Like <laughs> let's see what happens. To- Pure unadulterated freedom and free speech. And this is probably not going to be pretty, but it'd, it'd be nice to kind of see what what the what's going on in the world. I think that that's maybe the best way to handle it, but yeah, also it, maybe not the best.
1: It's, I think it's just challenging because there's some competing. Priorities, So, like, it's easy for us to talk about free speech versus not free speech as it relates to, um, like, hate or things like that. Um, but Elon's primary criticism going into Twitter was what he saw as inauthentic activity, like bots, for example. And so, like, being more restrictive of what you see as inauthentic, manipulative, spam, and so forth, um, intrinsically, that also has a friction with free speech. There are plenty of bots that actually do valuable things on Twitter. Like you can take a thread and, uh, tag this, like, like there's a thing that turns it into like one post. So it's like Mm -hmm. easy to like read it. Like that's a, that's a bot. I mean, it's literally a robot that you tweet at and it does something. Um, clearly I, I don't think anyone, including Elon would want that taken off, um, Everybody probably, including Elon, would like accounts with zero followers that have a picture of a woman in a bikini that tweet that like messages a hundred people and says like send me money, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> or whatever. Like everyone agrees that that's spam and you would want it to be taken down. But there, there is there is somewhere in the middle, right? There is actually some line. Elon has said that that wasn't strict enough. Um, eventually, that also does lead in a path of of problems of street of speech. There is going to be That person who says, you know, my bot shouldn't have been taken down, and it was. Um, And so I I think that it's been, this issue has mostly been attached to politics, um, but it is not exclusively. And so Elon has walked into a more complicated mind field, perhaps, (laughs) than uh, the simplicity of his just like, I want free speech and no spam. Okay, that take it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of intricate design to get to that goal.
0: Yes, a hundred percent. And he's he's going to be faced with nuance, right? Which is not something that in the businesses that he's been involved in, everything's pretty black and white. And there's going to be a lot of nuance because he's you're you're coming over from a mechanical and and in some points and chemical engineering background of you know all the way back to his his old roots of like software, but even even his old roots of like PayPal, that was like banking, right? It's pretty pretty black and white, debits, credits, you know. And now you're going into this space where th- there's a shit ton of nuance, and, and I don't know, I don't know how you tackle that, right? Other than just cranking the hose or cranking the water spigot, opening it up, and just just seeing what happens, uh, which is what I feel like, which that's being done right now. And you're taking back and maybe doing a case study of what's going on. But who knows? I would definitely, I certainly would want to be in that position. Um,
1: He also has basically placed his fortune on the line. I mean, I, I think the amount of money that he would have, even if Twitter completely was ablaze and and caught fire and it didn't. Even if Twitter didn't exist tomorrow and he lost all of that, he'd still have an unfathomable amount of money uh, from the perspective of any of us on this uh, stream. But to him, like he is, you know, he his his position as the most rich person on planet Earth is jeopardized if the uh, profitability of Twitter ends up in decline. And so, while he is certainly performing as though his incentive is purely ideological um there <laughs> there i i w- imagine that at some point the consequences of as you put it kind of just closing off the spigot and just letting everybody do whatever they want um, there are advertisers who will certainly put pressure on him in the opposite direction and so there is a complication of of money to be added to all of this as well
0: yeah that's gonna be tough because I, I'm I'm sure that the the advertising dollars after the Eli Lilly situation and uh, a lot of the fake fake corporate corporate accounts that the rise of that I'm sure I'm sure that people are pulling dollars away from Twitter uh, a lot of a lot of money's exiting um, that company right now. So I don't know, you know, he's got his work cut out from, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this plays out. Um,
1: I will add on the money point. Uh, one thing that he has said that he will do that I think would be immensely positive is, uh, adding monetization features for content creators. So, yes. so right now, like my primary, uh, like places that I publish are Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, Facebook and YouTube uh, both essentially pay me roughly half of the advertising revenue that is placed inside of videos of mine. So if if you're on Facebook and there's an ad on the side of it, I don't get any money from that, even if you're looking at my stuff. But if you watch one of my videos and it plays an ad beforehand, I get part of the money from from that happening. Um, Similarly on YouTube, uh, they pay out 55% to the content creator uh, right now, Twitter essentially has, like, a button that's, you know, someone could send me, a like, a tip. Like, so, you know, it does have the ability for a user to press one thing to see how to send me money. Uh, but it doesn't have any direct monetization feature. The, the fact that someone is spending more time on the website because I have posted something to it uh, generates revenue for Twitter and not for me um he has he has said that that's something that he'd like to change and i would unequivocally support that um assuming that it happens
0: yeah absolutely do you do you post any of your stuff on substack uh
1: no so i i do have um i work with matt taivi uh specifically on i i make documentaries out of content that i've uh, film. So like I, I generally publish raw footage to News to Share without any kind of narration or anything like that. Um, there's sort of a segment that we've generated uh, called Activism Uncensored, where I sort of consolidate my raw footage into 10-minute sort of mini documentaries where I narrate and just sort of explain, placing us in time and so forth. Um, and so that, that has... He then writes them up and it goes onto his Substack. when I do those. So I sort of <clears throat> peripherally have uh, used Substack, but I don't have one of my own.
0: I'm a big fan of Matt Taibbi. I really am big, big, <laughs> big fan. So that's cool that it's cool that you know him. Um, yep. so I want you, I want to kind of switch, switch gears here. You have your pulse on activism and what's going on in the world. And, and, I kind of want to get into some of the things you've been filming, some of the rallies that you've been at, and, and really just kind of see, you know, what your opinion is on the state of our society and, and, and where things are, where do you think things are heading? And that's a very broad question. The
1: state question. of the union is strong. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that's a very broad question, but I, I kind of right. want just, to just, I want to figure out where, where your head's at.
1: Sure. So. I have kind of been telling whoever will listen to me that I think that right now, America is in sort of, I would say, like a a false or a superficial sense of peace. And what I kind of mean by that is, um, you know, we were in a very, very tense place uh, in 2020 and beginning of 2021. And kind of the climax of that tension was January 6th, but that didn't happen out of nowhere, right? That happened um, both in the context of violence that had happened over the summer and into the fall uh, as a response to police violence, uh, as well as um, then in the fall and into the winter, um, the claims of election fraud. And neither of those situations actually changed – like the underlying causes of that violence has not actually changed, even if the violence has. And so, what I mean by that is, post January sixth, right wing activism um, really fell off a cliff. There was uh, just a a lot less uh, organization, whereas I used to see like in the in the lead up to January sixth, um, a highly highly active right wing militia groups. Um, You know, hundreds of Proud Boys could be organized in Washington, D.C. or Portland um, for for individual events. Um, Those groups are now showing up at things much more like the dozen than by the hundreds or thousands. Um, Similarly, racial justice activism has uh, not really stopped, but there have been uh, much smaller numbers uh, and much less attention by media uh, when those things happen. Um, And I think that that is in part uh, just time, like it's been longer since the summer of 2020. Um, But also that in my experience, it was way easier for them to organize um, when they had Trump as kind of a, a general kind of enemy to organize around. Like in D.C., there was kind of this joke of like, you know, protest is the new brunch, like people would look for what protest are we going to. And that was really driven by Trumpism. Nothing has really actually changed about the underlying issues. And that's not to say that like that the activists didn't accomplish anything, but like most reforms were fairly local uh or individual, right? Minneapolis's city council might have changed this or that. Individual cities might have changed their police funding, whatever. Um, but on the whole, the activism has has slowed down significantly but the underlying conditions haven't. Similarly, most Republicans today uh, being pulled, the last time I saw it, it was something like 70%, still think that the election of 2020 was stolen by um, Joe Biden. And so that underlying condition hasn't actually changed, even if nobody's storming any capitals right now. Therefore, I guess I would say the conditions that led to violence in 2020 and 20 and early 2021 have are are still there. All of these tensions, the problems that that led people into that stuff, is is all still there. And I think that it was Trump was a very animating moment where he got the right very excited, and he got the left sort of excited to fight him, and. His announcement recently was kind of low energy, both literally his own speaking about it um, and kind of the response to it. But I suspect that over the next year and especially 2024, um, a lot of these tensions will probably reignite. And it is my own opinion that while while the Capitol will never be stormed again, while the United States Capitol will be um, heavily protected, <laughs> you know, probably from now on, um, I think that the the potential for violence at boards of election, state capitals, uh, the potential for another tragedy related to policing to reignite um, that movement in that way, the ability for the, those two types of movements to, to clash again, I, I really think that all of that is kind of on the horizon. And we're already seeing small-scale versions of that um, where uh, it has been kind of in the last few months that that armed groups are starting to pop up again um, both on the left and the right, um, sort of in confrontations with one another.
0: So you're saying that <clears throat> we're in a, a powder keg of emotion right now and that someone, all we need is just the fuse to be lit and well, so, something I, might explode.
1: I'd be careful about the word need. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it, it might be all that it, all that it takes. Um, but I mean, I think that that's the types of tensions that I'm describing. So I would look at how, indiv- even though if they haven't formed into mass movements, there have been a lot of, like, I think individual signs that, like, it's like they've all been, so they have all been, like, relatively small, but it just little things keep happening. So, just examples of what I mean following Trump's um, being raided at Mar a Lago. Um, I had a contributor film as there were people who showed up with guns outside the FBI office in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, nobody got hurt, technically legal to open carry, but nonetheless, Trump Trump supporters showed up uh, exercising their Second Amendment. Um, meanwhile, I f- think it was Ohio or Michigan, so there, somewhere else, um, there was a individual who showed up with a, I think it was a nail gun who tried to kill FBI agents. Um who himself had participated in January 6th uh, before that. Um, There's also been a a huge uprise in the number of uh, kind of impressions, accounts, whatever, talking about sort of anxieties over they're they're turning our kids gay or they're turning our kids trans, like this kind of uh, anxiety. Um, And that has led to the real world presence of people with firearms at uh, events like that, as well as... As we know of two two bomb threats to hospitals uh, that were perceived as being part of that, um, and then of course there was the shooting in uh, Colorado Springs that I believe left fi- was it five people dead John um, called, uh, and, the and a number of others injured. Um, it was
2: five people, yeah.
1: As, as we are recording this right now, um, I'm going to be going to Texas in a few days uh, because there is in. Uh, San Antonio going to be and at the time you published this there was so we'll see how it goes um a uh situation in which there's going to be some kind of a, a tr- uh, all all ages transgender celebrating uh holiday event and um there were reports Tejas? that a that a right-wing militia is plan is inviting people to I shouldn't just say reports they're they're organizing it on Twitter um <laughs> that a a right-wing group is saying Please come and open carry outside this event. Like, they're going to protect the children who are attending it by bringing firearms. And this has caused there to be, um, there are also left-wing groups that are saying we're going to show up armed to, uh, protect against that. But the, the net result is that what I am anticipating is, at best, that there will be, um... Armed adversaries facing each other outside of an event with children inside—that's that's probably the best case scenario for how that goes. And I, I think it goes without saying how essentially fundamentally dangerous that situation is for for parties other than activists, right? Like like for the people who are just attending attending inside, the possibility of a of a shootout or or something like that outside is obviously, you know,
0: that's no, it's a powder keg. How? Yeah. But how sure? Are we that this isn't like foreign interference? Because I know I can't remember the documentary, but like there, there was um, how how sure are we that this isn't like Twitter being manipulated? This is one of Elon's concerns, right, by the, these bots or these fake organizations that might start rallies to to cause internal like how sure are we that that's because the, the, this just seems a little bit too good to be true, right? Like why. I don't know. There was a. I I can't think of the example. And and John, see if you can can find something on this. But in my memory, there was like a um, 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 a Muslim rally in Texas, and then another one was like a you know like a kind of a like a a, a definitely right leaning Christian rally, and they were Mm -hmm. they were set up right next to each other in the hopes that things would pop off. This was in Texas.
2: It was in Texas. uh, Texas Muslim Capital Day in uh, January of seventeen. Uh, was organized by uh, a Russian Facebook page. See, but this to t- to
0: me like something like this seems like it would be a uh, another state you know another uh, not i get I'd states the best word that comes to mind my, my brain's i need more coffee but uh, th- it seems like this is ripe this this type of situation seems like it would be uh, some some interference from a foreign entity right like that's kind of it just seems too good to be true I,
1: I certainly hesitate to just speculate that that's the case good i point. i think it's i i guess i i can neither confirm nor deny i mean how could i know or not you <laughs> know whether something like that was going on in this particular um situation I will say that in, I I looked into the group the the right-wing group that's attending and I and their name escapes me right now but um, they have shown up at previous uh, events including some in which there they believed that there would be an adversary and then there wasn't one was it um, Patriot front it was not Patriot front this is okay. this is a, a local Texas uh, mm-hmm. militia group Um but the, I, I would note, however, so like there was a situation in Ohio uh, this past weekend in which um, the Proud Boys had promised to go to – there was going to be a, trans, a trans-friendly event inside a church. And the Proud Boys said that they would come and protest it. And the church ended up canceling this event because of the possible attendance of Proud Boys. So the Proud Boys still showed up. Um, To be clear, I I did not personally go to this. I was covering a different story in Kentucky at the time. But Mm -hmm. um, the Proud Boys showed up uh, as promised. But what was, I think, probably more interesting was that it ended up sort of magnetizing other right-wing groups. So Patriot Front did show up. Um, Was it Texas
2: Freedom Force?
1: Texas Freedom Force. I believe that's the group that we're talking about. Is the is the uh, one in San Antonio. Um, there was a local militia that showed up at this Ohio event. Um, there was a group called White Lives Matter that showed up. And nice. so what's interesting beyond just sort of the numbers is the kind of inadvertent coalition that sort of formed where, like, the Proud Boys uh, contend that they are um, – that they are race blind. They say that they're sort of not racist, but they're also kind of anti-anti-racist. Like, they, you know, they, they clearly sort of take a side, but at the same time, they say that they're not an organization based around around race. Um, similarly, apparently this militia claimed that they were there to like police both sides and keep the peace. Um, <laughs> okay. But whereas standing beside them, people who were attracted uh, with apparently the same goals as the Proud Boys were... Uh, white Lives Matter, which is sort of an explicitly white nationalist, um, you know, organization, uh, and Patriot Front, which is a, a avowed fascist group. They they have their recruits read Mussolini. Like <laughs> they are they are. It is no secrets that they are that they are fascist in in alignment. Um, and so these different groups kind of coalescing next to each other, even if they all did their own separate, you know, kind of take on the mm-hmm. thing. They they've ended up with sort of a shared. Uh, enemies. So what will be interesting to see, and again, by the time you publish this, I think it, it will already have happened, uh, is to see which groups show up at the Texas thing. You know, the Texas Freedom Force is saying, anyone who wants to bring a, a gun, but just please show up. We'll see what <laughs> happens. Right. Uh, would that attract people like Patriot Front? Would that attract people like Proud Boys? Uh, you know, what what types of people on the left will show up to counter it? Um you know we we it remains to be seen but kind of those dividing lines the coalitions are are sort of forming um and that will certainly be complicated and have implications leading into 2024
0: so you're a really good person to ask um <laughs> okay patriot front they right. they are a fascist organization um, now in order to join them, do you have to be white or like, is that like, are they like, I have no, I couldn't find, I read their manifesto, but right. I don't know, like outside of them being fascist and, you know, trying uh, to save America. I don't really fucking know what they are.
1: So, okay. So I, yeah, I want to be very clear that they use innuendo and yes. They sort of mask their their they they mask their language by making it seem very like <laughs> it's like hard it's so to, hard dude to describe. it's so
0: hard they, that's what I'm
1: saying they use a lot of euphemisms um, to try to to. Ob- you know, obscure what exactly they're about. So firstly, let me say that I interviewed their founder, uh, Thomas Rousseau, uh, before he had founded Patriot Front. And so this was uh, Charlottesville. So I I filmed the violence and the torch rally and stuff that happened at Charlottesville. And so uh, Thomas Rousseau, who was only 20 years old at the time, um, torch in hand, uh, said he, like, called me a degenerate or something, <laughs> and I went up to, and so I, I started recording, and this is as they're preparing for the famous torch march. He, he, has an unlit torch in his hand as, as this conversation happens, and I, I went up to him. I started recording immediately, and I was like, "Did you just call me a degenerate?" And he said something like, "Well, you're with the media, and the media is all degenerate." So it's sort of a multi-step process. And I was like, "Like, okay, whatever." Like, and I was like, "So, what are you doing out here?" And. He uh, describes why he's at Charlottesville, and he talks about how he thinks that white people are under attack and and so forth. And I asked him about, you know, it it didn't seem to me apparent that he was necessarily like a neo-Nazi or something like that. Yeah. And I asked him, um, why are you allying with um, with National Socialists with Nazis? Um, there were avowed groups there who who identified as National Socialists. And he said his exact words were, well, I'm a fascist myself, so I'm not really allying with them. I am one. And so he did self-identify with the term fascist at the time. Um, At the time, he was with Vanguard America, which essentially is the group that – because uh, James Alex Fields, who who was since convicted of murdering Heather Hare in the car attack in Charlottesville, um, because of his uh, sort of loose association with that group, they basically disbanded and then Tommy Russo founded this new group. Um, they, he disputes the idea that it is a simply a regr- rebrand of Vanguard America. Um, but in, in any event, he went from one to the other. He founded this new organization. Patriot Front uses Um, American patriotic imagery as opposed to things like swastikas, clan hoods or whatever. um, I think in an effort to appear more palatable uh, to conservatives and I have sort of seen this be effective, like in the sense that like when I've reported on them, I I do not use the word fascist sparingly. Like, some people on the left will like refer to every bone, everybody. To groups, as everybody a, they will yeah, say that fucking the proud drives boys
0: me are, insane. Right. They'll yeah. say
1: like the proud boys are fascist or something yes. like that. Like I understand why they might use that, but when they say that they're using it, I, I, I don't want to say imperfectly, but they, like imprecisely yes. they're, they're using it as an insult, which they're certainly entitled to do 100%. in the same way that a right winger might be like, Oh, AOC is a communist yeah. or something like that. Like she doesn't identify as a com, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, in the case of Patriot Front, they don't outwardly say we're a fascist organization or we're a white nationalist organization. Mm-hmm. Instead, when they march around, they use a flag that is basically the American flag with a fascist on it, right? Which literally the term um, fascism, right, comes from uh, this kind of idea of like a bundling, like and which is exemplified or symbolized with a fascist. So they are they literally have it's like a bundle of sticks with a with a an axe in the center of it they are using or hybridizing Original Italian fascist iconography and putting it onto the American flag. When you ask them about it, they will say, "Oh, well, there's actually a fascist somewhere in the capital. Like, there's there are some places that it's ended up in American symbols of democracy." And so again, they can kind of like point to other examples and they'll go, "Ah, that Mussolini stuff. That's not what we're talking about, (laughs) right?" Um, Similarly, on their website, um, for example, they. Talk a lot about, well, America was founded by Europeans. Yes. Right? They talk and it's exclusively for its founder. Like yes. they kind of have this like complicated way of describing white nationalism where they um avoid using that exact label. And so they, they do. they've done the same thing on the street. Where like when they meet people who they think are possibly favorable to them, they are obscuring their message by saying, oh, well, we're not white supremacists. We just have XYZ belief. We just want to like support white people, defend like some kind of victimhood thing, or we just want everybody to be, you know, to thrive separately. Like they come up with these various different ways of describing it, it that make it complicated or hard to label them.
0: It's that's I've been so confused because I've read the entire manifesto. I was like, well, this didn't really say anything. The the thing that I the one point that you brought up that I I I really and this is why I love talking to you is the last thing that I ever want to do is call someone racist or call someone like a a Nazi or a fascist. And the, the prevalence of that word. I that's the last thing. I don't want to believe that of my fellow man, right? Right. And so when everything gets labeled that or anything that's I get confused and I automatically just just, just dismiss it as truth. So I figured you'd be like the, the best person to ask about that because you have a lot of experience in these types of situations. Um and <clears throat> until we can take a step back and like that being the last means, the last resort as, as calling someone that I just, I don't, I just have to sit back and be, well, I don't know. I don't know one way or the other. I'll have to look into it. I'm, I'm confused, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty clear to me. And and that's what I'd thought initially, but I really wanted to be firm on labeling them that. So
1: they had a big, uh, leak. They had a lot of data, like on one computer or something that somehow was acquired by, um, Unicorn Riot is the name mm-hmm. of a of kind of a left-leaning uh, news organization, um, independent news organization. Um, among that, as well as documents that uh, ProPublica published, like internally, like with, within their actual organizing spaces, which are not covered by, you know, the media, um, they, Tommy Russo referred to themselves as we are the modern fascists. He just, yeah. you know, he just outright says it. Um, He assigned Mussolini as reading and so forth. And so I would be careful about just there's the distinction between their public facing. You know, they put all of these like big words into a manifesto and they avoid just saying, you know, fascist, whatever, like whatever. Um, That doesn't mean that they don't have an understanding behind closed doors of exactly what they are.
2: Yeah, what's up, John? Uh, So according to the ADL... Uh, Patriot Front is a white supremacist organization whose members maintain that their ancestors conquered America and bequeathed it to them and no one else.
1: Right? Yeah. I mean, so that's ba- basically like it's it, as a multi-step process. Like, if their claim is white people founded America, and then they're like, and only the founders should get it. They're white nationalists, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. just with with a couple of steps to to get there.
0: What are some other groups that you're seeing? Any? Any? I guess any new. Types of not. I'm looking for the the word activist groups. That's the, that's a good yeah. term um, that are popping up that you're seeing um, recently.
1: Um, I think I would hesitate to use the word new to describe what I'm about to say, but something that's been really interesting to me this year is I've actually spent a lot of time up close covering um, black self defense groups. Yeah, um, black and panthers. So th- that includes uh, the new Black Panther Party, yeah. which is which is controversial in some ways, right? There are people who uh, dislike them using the term Black Panther on the basis of of you know lack of relationship with the original Black Panthers. There there are actually groups that call themselves the original Black Panther Party. Um, again, which some people sort of dispute the the connection. But in any event, kind of modern um, modern Black Second Amendment groups. Um, this July, I went to Mississippi where I filmed as. Uh, A the groups uh, a a coalition of these sorts of groups um, went to talk about a case that happened in Brookhaven, uh, where there was an individual who was a black uh, FedEx driver who um, was shot at by by a father son duo um, as he was delivering packages. He like went down a wrong driveway, yeah, and. CNN did report on that. There was some reporting on that shooting when it first happened, but the media mostly kind of stopped caring about it. Yeah. Um, in in and to be clear, they shot at him and then they chased. He drove chased, away. Yeah, because they, people, chased and they chased him. him. Yeah. And so they uh, the these groups came to rally around him about the fact that the two individuals were not at the time. Uh, charged with any kind of hate crime, they weren't charged with attempted murder. the The charges were were very small. It was something like a, like assault and conspiracy to assault for the two for the two guys. They and they were able to swiftly make bail. Um, so they were rallying to um, advocate, uh, you know, that they be charged with with murder over it. Um, what was fascinating or kind of the most interesting aspect of that day was that they first they first went to. Um, uh, DA's office who refused to speak with all of them. Then they went to a police station who refused to speak with all of them. And then they actually went to the scene of the shooting. And so the this young man uh, was able to tell his story where it happened with armed protection um, from from Panthers and so forth. Um, other than me, there were two journalists who were there. There was one local journalist uh, who who showed up. Uh, like a local newspaper guy, and then there was one uh, documentary maker who who I was the one who referred him to be there, like told him, hey, this thing is going on, and he showed up there. So so, (laughs) me and a friend of mine were two-thirds of the reporters who actually cared to go to this. Um, Two days later, uh, there was an armed march in Natchez, Mississippi, uh before I describe this are either of you familiar with uh Natchez Mississippi the Devil's Punch Bowl
0: The name rings a bell but, I've I've heard could it, but I could not tell you say. why I know it
1: Right okay so this was the scene of a uh end of civil war tragedy in which the um confederacy uh pushed uh formerly enslaved people um to this basically canyon I know and the idea was to to slow down advancing union forces and basically those union forces on arrival um it is it the, the history is very sort of poorly recorded you know who who would who would document themselves doing these sorts of things right that but the union allegedly uh basically kept forced them all to stay there and and they starved most of them to death and so as some historians have said that um, I believe the number was like 80,000 people essentially died um, who would have been freed at the end of the Civil War and instead the Union forces confined them to a space where they starved and died of diseases and so forth. Um, Barely talked about in history. I I will say I was not familiar with it until learning of the protests that would be taking place. And the reason that they did this event um that was actually it began at the graveyard there and they marched uh through town and then returned to that graveyard so they were making a very specific point uh about the tragedy that had unfolded and the fact that history um had not really recorded or talked about it um i was the only press other than like pe- like participants who had cameras right so there were a few people who sort of had like essentially bla- black panther media so to speak um but but as far as press from outside of them, I was the only person who covered as as it was hundreds of armed, uh, armed African-American people marching through uh, the streets of an American city uh, talking about a, a genocide that that took place and no, no press showed up. Um, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. There so, was another
0: one that happened in North Florida, but I can't I don't remember the name. And then there's obviously the Black Wall Street, but I, I was not aware of that. Now I'm gonna, I'll, I'll probably lose myself for a few days I, looking into this. I
1: found it very difficult to research um in this, and I don't mean just like, oh, that it was hard reading about it because of the sort of brutality about it. Nothing. I mean, like literally, it's hard to find information about it. John, see if um, you can find
0: anything. Put it in the show notes.
1: So, um going through the <laughs> the situations, there was um a few weeks ago I went back to Mississippi. Uh, to the town of Gulfport, um, where there was um, a 15-year-old who had been shot by police outside of a family dollar who who died. Um, And uh, that case similarly has not attracted much media attention, although it's had daily protests. And frankly, I suspect that if it had been an election year um, or if uh, the orange man was president, the media might be a lot more interested. Um, But... In nothing about policing changes when it's pre- when it's President Biden instead of President Trump. And yet, you know, the media seemed to be pretty much disinterested in that shooting. Um, I went there and filmed as uh, the founder of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York was carrying an AK, you know, among other people in that kind of coalition uh, talking about their issues. And again, I was one of very few journalists Um most recently, uh, this past weekend, and I, I think maybe most fascinatingly, um, there has been sort of a renewed attention to the lynching of Emmett Till in 1955. Um, to those who don't know, Emmett Till was uh, accused of of whistling or perhaps grabbing the hand of a white woman at a store. Um, and uh, he was brutally... Uh, taken from his home and murdered uh, two nights later um, and the two murderers of Emmett Till uh, were tried at the time in 1955 for murder and they were both acquitted uh, they said oh yeah we totally kidnapped him but we let him go you know we're not even sure if that's if that's his body that was their defense and the jury acquitted an all-white jury acquitted them in an hour um, and there was sort of a famous, a uh, quote from someone on that jury that said something like, it would have taken uh, less than an hour if we hadn't taken the time to get a soda first. Yeah. Um, it was very it's very clear in history. It's commonly understood that the lynching of Emmett Till, uh, it is it is unequivocal that those two men did that um, murder uh, and they got away with it because of of a of a bias on the part of the jury um, those two men uh, later admitted to it in an interview with a magazine because they couldn't be tried a second time. More, what was really interesting: two two things happened this year that drew renewed attention to this 67-year-old case. Uh, firstly, there was a movie um, made about it. Um, so there is a film. I believe it was Oprah, Oprah who actually like financed it. Um, as I just said that, I'm like, I'm not was it Oprah or was John, it? Uh, John
0: John will pull it up. Don't worry about he, it.
1: Yeah, you if know. you could look it up. There was some there was some celebrity, there was some uh A A list celebrity who who financed the film and was involved in it. After I just said Oprah, I'm like, I might be thinking of a different film uh for her. it might have been Whoopi Goldberg. Um in any event, uh there's a film and additionally uh, this year, a warrant was found that in 1955 the two um, people who physically murdered Emmett Till had been tried and then were acquitted, therefore preventing them from being charged again. Uh, and they all and they both died some years later. The actual uh, woman who made that first accusation was charged, or what a grand jury charged her with um, kidnapping, and so a an unserved warrant existed for kidnapping. And Carolyn Bryant is still alive and reportedly lives in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And so this was sort of a long introduction to get to. This weekend I filmed as a coalition, including Black Panthers, uh, armed activists showed up in Bowling Green, Kentucky uh, to, to go outside of Carolyn Bryant's home and say, we want her to be uh, charged still. And they were faced down by police who also showed up with rifles. And so this kind of led to um, this very tense sort of, uh, in the words of Malik Shavaz, who was there, who was one of the leaders in this group, uh, sort of a showdown uh, as, the, as the police were staring down activists who were holding rifles. And they said, <coughs> you're all here right now, but, you know, what, at some point, uh, you're all going to leave and this woman's still going to be here sort of unprotected. Um and so she is now 88 years old and will in all likelihood die without ever being held to account for it uh but um it was it was fascinating to me to see that that she is still alive and see a protest about about that case
2: uh so it was Whoopi goldberg who (laughs) who financed that yeah nice
1: um i haven't seen the film yet but i've heard that it's very very good
0: definitely not gonna watch it I'll get sad it's like i started watching fruitville station i was like fuck oh my that, god i was Yeah. after watching yeah. that i <laughs> yeah, think it's dude. a very
1: very very important movie it fruitville
0: is a very station. important movie but i just um, like yeah as soon as he like came home and was hanging out with his, his family i was like nah dude nah, nope nope you're gonna turn it off i'll get sad can't do it
1: yeah but, i i will say fruitville station just as a side note was a Great was an important film and an important story for the fact that that was one of the first cases in which, like, civilian-held um, footage, a, a cell phone video, is the, is the reason that a cop was held somewhat accountable uh, to that particular um, shooting, right? I, I believe that the, the police shooting at Fruitville Station would have been unremarkable in history, yeah. uh, probably forgotten about just like any, any other police shooting, just, you know, just one of the thousand per year. Um, roughly it, it would have been forgotten about in history had it not been for someone filming it on a cell phone.
0: Yeah. I'm the work that you do is is so important, man. And I, I've always wanted to ask you this, what is it about activism and why why were you drawn to pursue this career in filming it and kind of navigating this world
1: yeah i think that the problem that i've had with mainstream media is that it's so focused on echoing like voices within government about all issues like it's if there's some issue of just some issue of the day right taxes should be higher taxes should be lower Guns should be less restricted, more restricted, whatever. The mainstream media has made it really easy to present these things as like simple binaries where they can just call on some congressman and some, you know, official or or person on a campaign or whatever. And like that's kind of how they voice, you know, the opinions that you're supposed to care about. And it's like very, very confined to a very simple binary, a very narrow Overton window of like allowable thought. And to me, activism on the street is the most emblematic of what people feel the most strongly about, right? So, like, like in terms of, like, the effort that you put in to make a change... Voting while important is like the is like the least somebody can do because they care about something. Right. Yeah. Like if you really, really like or dislike Donald Trump, right? We'll just use that as an example. Right? Like there's a story that can be told about the number of people in each state who vote for that person, right? And someone can express, ah oh, yes, I I do like that person or I don't like that person or what they care about or represent by doing that. But if you really want to like under if you want to understand what people are thinking, what people care about, the issues of the day, then the people who actually go out on the street potentially confronting others uh, about what they care about, like that that show that gives you such a clearer picture of of the mindset of people. Um what I film and I tend to focus a lot on armed activism, on people who show up with with guns to things, and that's not simply because firearms are interesting uh, or that audiences care more about situations when uh, they have them, or or even the fact that they are that they're inherently sort of more dangerous situations. It is because for someone to care about something so much. Um, that they show up with a, with an instrument capable of death. Um, like that, that is in a way the most impassioned anybody can be about, about anything. Like it is a statement of, this is how far I am willing to take, to take it. Yep. this. Um, and so I, I care deeply about documenting, um, those sorts of people, in in a way, much more than I do, about kind of the canned um, speeches and so forth that you can get in Congress, right? So I I have a congre- congressional press credential, and so I can go into into the Capitol and film, uh, you know, press briefings and uh, you know speeches, committee hearings, and so forth. And I and I've done some of that sometimes, um, but to me, it is so hollow. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's so not informative about really the pulse of where America's at compared to traveling around and really meeting people.
0: It is. And one of the things I did want to ask is, like, how... The, the thing... And this is um, a very interesting point that a lot of uh, very pro... And I'm very pro Second Amendment, but, like, uh, think tanks oh. are, like... We should all have guns, right? Like, if you're protesting and you're going to do an event, and the reason being is, like, you are capable, like, you look at, you see how many times have you seen footage of tear gas and bullshit, right? In those instances where you're a protester and everyone's armed, the level of respect that the, 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 the government, the ones that have a monopoly on violence it's going to be pretty fucking mellow because like lives are at stake and, and you can do just as much harm as they can. And so that I feel like b- b- lowers the, it lowers the amount of potential saboteurs, agent provocateurs that are able to maybe hijack your movement. And I think that that's why a lot of these people may end up doing it. That's my opinion, right? I mean, if something does go wrong and you, you don't, you can't account for everyone that's in your organization or in your, that is is protesting with you to do the right thing and have gun responsibility and whatnot. But to me, it does seem like the most dangerous slash foolproof plan of not getting fucked with. Cause you know, and I don't know where, where your thoughts lie on that. I don't know if you've, you've been at at these things where things turned sideways.
1: Sure. So as a general comment, I have been, uh, I, I don't want to opine on my own political position on guns or something like that, but I, I, will, I can describe from history, like my, you know, the situations I've been at where guns are involved. Um, so I guess I've been at four events with gun, like with gunfire, other than things like at at a range or something like that. I mean, I've certainly filmed guns being fired in controlled settings, but um, but in in terms of like at demonstrations where there were gunfire. Right, uh, the first was Charlottesville. Um, there was a guy named Richard Preston, who uh, it turned out was a janitor at a Baltimore public school, and he was also the leader of his local Klan chapter. Oh, glorious! And um, <laughs> so, during the violence that happened at Charlottesville, I actually filmed over, basically, over his shoulder as people were throwing. Uh, water bottles up toward the at the right-wing side, and he actually unholstered a handgun and pointed it twice at the crowd. And he didn't fire it right then, um, but I, I remember feeling like my heart was really pounding, like, oh my god, like, the, you know, the dangerousness of that moment was, you know, yeah. immense. Later in that day, I actually found out, um, actually, minutes later, um, he witnessed as there was a right-winger being pushed by the police the 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 way that that day in Charlottesville sort of went was after an unlawful ass- uh, assembly was declared the police basically pushed everyone the same direction to make them leave this essentially pushed the right toward the left which exacerbated the violence rather than ending it as opposed to obviously police ideally push two sides apart in order to alleviate violence so mm-hmm. The, there was a right winger being pushed toward somebody on the left who that person on the left made a makeshift flamethrower. He took a like a, a lighter and a um, spray bottle and basically sprayed flame toward uh toward a right winger. Richard Preston, who I had filmed minutes earlier pointing a gun at the crowd, uh approached that person and fired a single shot um that that barely missed him. Um, my understanding is he ultimately was sentenced to eight years with four of them suspended. Uh, he may be out by now. Um, probably roughly by uh, right now, but, um, so that was one time. And later in that situation, there were a lot of guns at Charlottesville. There was one shot fired. Um, of course, as we know, later that day, a car was used as a weapon, which led to 19 injuries and, and one death. Yeah. Um, fast forward to, uh, July uh, of 2020, and I was filming the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition, uh, was a explicitly black nationalist uh, group. Um, their core ideology was they wanted to take Texas uh, and turn that into a black only nation. Nice.
0: These people fucking gay.
1: their leader is now doing seven and a half years in prison for pointing a rifle at a federal agent. Uh, but. On that day in July, it was actually the first of of a, several times that I filmed them. Uh, there was one individual who had a shotgun um, that apparently passed out. This is how they said it happened sort sort of in front of me, but like a hundred yard, a hundred feet away. So it was like too far to. See, they were in a group, and so it was hard to see exactly what led to it. But there, as everybody was sort of getting ready, there was just this big boom, uh, and smoke rose from the center of it, and. Uh, at first they thought they were being shot at or something. Like some of them pointed guns like into the crowd, which could have made it like way worse. Um, but it turned out three people, uh, were hit below the waist by, by one, um, shotgun fire, uh, to people who aren't familiar, um, birdshot or buckshot out of a shotgun spreads. And so it can actually hit multiple targets. And so three people were injured. Um, the same group rallied in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, in October 2020, and one person who showed up, who wasn't part of their group, accidentally fired a pistol twice. Uh, nobody was injured that time. And then the last time, the most recent time that I've been in a situation with gunfire was January 6th. Uh, Ashley Babbitt being shot. Yeah. And that was and that was a police a fatal police shooting. How
0: close were you to um, that?
1: Okay, so I did not enter the Capitol. I stood on. Uh, for the most part, I stood at the east entrance, um, which in terms of the dynamics of the day was most relevant in that that was where the Oath Keepers uh, breached. Um, so I did not physically go inside the building. Of course, Ashley Babbitt was shot uh, climbing through a broken window into the speaker's lobby, mm-hmm. which would have brought her into um, the House of Representatives where there were still members of Congress. Um Following the shooting, the way that I discovered the shooting was that there was an individual um, who actually came outside. There, were, People were just flowing in and out of the building like mad. And so there was an individual who came outside, who I interviewed, who said to me, it, into my camera, that um, now someone's been shot and she's dead and the blood is on your hands, Mike Pence. Uh, was what he told me, and I was like, "Wait, what?" And he and he confirmed to me that yeah, a woman was shot with a service weapon, and he said right through the neck. And at the time, I I actually didn't believe him when he said that. I I thought he, not that he was lying but that there's a lot of things in riot scenarios that can sound like gunfire to the untrained ear. Yeah. You know, right like flash grenades, people mm-hmm. po- you know, pointing firearms and then you hear some other boom. It would be very easy to mistake something for gunfire. It it wasn't until much later that I that I realized that he had actually told me the, the truth that a woman had actually been shot.
0: I saw it. I saw the video, so that, man.
1: That was so the I just described the four situations that I guess I've been at with gunfire in in 5 years. And I've been at a lot more situations that have guns that obviously that they have not been fired. Yeah. My overall impression, I guess I would say, is like the injuries that result from gunfire are drastically more catastrophic than the injuries that result from someone hitting someone with a bat or mace or whatever. Um, there was actually one situation August in August 2020 in which there was fighting near the Stone Mountain Memorial, uh, which is sort of like the memorial memorial. People call it the the Mount Rushmore of the Confederacy. There was brawling involving pepper spray, melee weapons, and so forth, and a lot of people with guns. And something that I realized there that was very interesting to me was when those brawls began and someone with a gun was in it. Pretty much every time, the people with the guns would run away. They would try to get out of the fight. Yes, um, yes. So there, there's a deterrent value to firearms, and I think, and I've seen like both that be deescalatory in a way and that people are less likely to confront an armed uh rival um and there's also a sense probably of greater responsibility like someone with a gun is more likely to retreat from a fight if the fight has actually started um but there's but there's an added tension and there's an added risk that 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 the violence could be fatal if it's added, like it yeah. it it really raises the risk level,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, while also decreasing in a way the likelihood of violence happening in the first place. And so I, I guess I would say that like, like the re- the result is is quite mixed. It, it <laughs> uh, is in my experience. And
0: if if we lived in a world full of Ricks, Fisher, Fords, and Johns. <laughs> We'd be fine, because the proper right. <laughs> the proper thing to do, if you're caring, is to immediately de-escalate. It's like the guy pulling his gun, that you were talk- the janitor, the, the Klansman janitor, pulling his gun, right? Like You'd never do that unless your intent is to end, oh my goodness, it's a beagle. <laughs> yes. Ford has he, brought he, the beagle. He's been
1: napping the whole time, <laughs> and then he just walked <laughs> over to me as if to say, like, I'm <laughs> getting bored of this (laughs) podcast but uh yeah so there's chestnut
0: there chestnut the the beagle i love it it's beautiful yeah but um your your primary you got to de-escalate right and and that's what I'm saying it would be I would I don't know if I would go if there was a bunch of guns uh, because I just can't count on other people there there's a thing called gun balls and a lot of people have them and that essentially means you're looking for trouble and you want to kill someone and I don't want to be a part of that but um, listen man I I want to be respectful of your time tell tell the good people where they can find you and uh, you've already shared uh, with us what like where you're heading next but just let them know where they can find you on social media and and all that good jazz
1: so it's a news to share news, the number to share on Facebook. Uh, It's at N2S reports on Twitter. And then my personal account is at Ford Fisher, F O R D F I S C H E R. And on YouTube also news to share. Um, And sometimes on Twitter, I also post stuff with chestnuts. So (laughs) if you follow me there, then uh, you might also see him.
0: (laughs) All right, man. Well, I appreciate it Uh, folks. The world is a crazy place, but again, You got to focus on what you control, your diet, your effort, and your attitude, and that's all you can do. I love you guys, and we'll see you next week.